I'd like for you to take the Word of God, please, and uh, turn to the book of John, John chapter 4. Uh, if you are wanting to know who Jesus is, uh, there's no better book, I believe, than the book of John. When I have had the privilege of leading somebody to faith in Christ, uh, I always like to encourage them to start reading the Word of God uh, so that they can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And I always start with the book of John. I believe there's a better place that you can send somebody to know who Christ is. Um, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 4 and uh, verse number 23 this morning. And as you turn there, please be mindful of the upcoming events on the back of the bulletin. Favorite hymns and testimony time next Sunday night. Married couples get away at the Passage Northwest. $40 a couple that you'll pay at the door. There's information at the check-in table. You're welcome to take a flyer and get all the information on that. Please sign up uh, if you're interested in that so that I can pass along a good number uh, to those who are making plans for that, uh, for that special event. Now, if you honor the Lord and invest $40 in your marriage uh, and go to that, uh, to that couple's getaway, the Passage Northwest, don't dishonor the Lord the next day by not being in church. And so uh, I wanted to say that uh, I think it's important that uh, I think it's important that we invest in our marriages. I think it'll be a wonderful time. The keynote speaker is Dr. Greg Boyle, and we're going to enjoy that. Uh, but I also want you to be able to enjoy assembling with the local assembly the next day, uh, and, uh, and and be sure that we honor the Lord in both ways. I think we can do it, uh, and I know that you that's your intention and your desire. Uh, John chapter 4 and verse number 23, uh, this is the story where Christ meets a woman at the well. And we're going to jump right into this and uh, right into the conversation right in the middle of it, really towards the end of it, in verse number 23, where Jesus said, But the hour cometh, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand this thing today of, of, of what it is to truly worship you. I ask your blessing, Lord, help me. Uh, strengthen me. Strengthen my voice, Father. I pray that you would recall to my mind all the things that you've laid upon my heart. And I pray for those who have not yet trusted Christ the, as their Savior, uh, that they would realize before they can even begin to worship God, they need to have a relationship through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I think that uh, most Christians would agree that God alone is worthy of our worship. A person who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope of a relationship with God and a home in His presence for eternity uh, should have a desire uh, to be a worshiper of God. Now, I don't, I don't mean just uh, some feigned thing, but I mean somebody who has trusted in Christ as their Savior ought to have a deep desire in their heart uh, to be a true worshiper of God. They, they don't just have a desire to enjoy the benefits of salvation. Somebody who comes to faith in Christ ought to have an ingrained desire to truly worship God, not just because of the benefits that they enjoy, but because of who God is and, and what God has done for them. We love Him, the Bible says. Why? Because He first loved us. And we reciprocate that back to Him and we reciprocate that love back to him uh, through true worship and the way that God wants to be worshipped. That desire, I want to be sure that I, I'm clear, the desire uh, to 
worship God does not constitute salvation in and of itself. I want, I want everybody to understand that. Uh, but it certainly accompanies genuine salvation. It doesn't make us saved if we have that desire to worship God. There's many people in this world that desire to worship God, and they, uh, they try this way, and they try that way, and they go through this person, they go through that person. But that does not constitute that that person is saved just because they have a desire, an intense desire in their heart to worship God. The only way that a person can truly worship God is, is to have salvation through Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. And so it's important that we put all of that together. Um, it is the work of the adversary to distract us from true worship, to offer up something that will trick us into believing that we are worshiping. And some believe that because they have gone through a religious exercise or an experience that they might be coming or might have come into contact with God. It's often the case that the better something sounds or seems or feels, the more likely it is to distract us from what God calls true worship. Paul, under the divine inspiration of God, dealt with this in the book of Philippians chapter 3 when he declared in the context of worship, have no confidence in the flesh. That's what Paul was speaking of in Philippians 3, 3 when he said that. He was speaking in the context of worship. And Paul was affirming the biblical truth that we cannot worship God any other way but than in the Spirit. And we find that in our text. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. And Paul said very clearly, have no confidence in the flesh when it, when it comes to worship. Don't trust uh, your flesh when it comes to worship. I've said this before, and I've had people come up to me and say, what did you mean when you said that? And, and I say, I am suspect of my own spirituality for that very reason. Because of my flesh, because my flesh gets in the way. Because uh, so often what I think, what I want, what I feel interferes with what God thinks, what God wants, and what God feels. And so when it comes to the spiritual realm, I, I try to maintain the, the mindset that I need to remain suspect of my own spirituality because I know the wickedness of my own flesh. Matter of fact, I don't know the fullness of it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God, right? And I've taken the teaching of God's word and, and decided that even in, in things that I think are spiritual, I need to remain suspect of my flesh. You know, the flesh is, in so many ways, it's, it's the enemy. And we'll, we'll see that. Matter of fact, the flesh is the worst enemy of the believer. The flesh is the tool that Satan uses. We might say, well, Satan is the worst enemy. No, the tool that Satan uses is our flesh. And in many ways, so many ways, our flesh is the greatest enemy of the believer. And so we ought to have no confidence in it. True worship does not merely stir our flesh. It doesn't even stir our soul. I, there's a hymn book out there. And don't get me wrong, it's a great hymn book. And I'm not criticizing those who publish it. And I'm not even criticizing... Uh, the, the songs that are in it. Matter of fact, many of the songs that are in it are, are songs that we have in our Bible Truth hymn book. And one of the reasons I selected our hymn book was because it said Bible Truth Hymns. I like that. But the hymn book is titled Soul Stirring Psalms and Hymns. Songs and Hymns. The very popular, even in, in and amongst uh, independent Baptist churches. We don't need our soul stirred when we come to worship God. Our soul is, is, is what makes up 
our mind, our emotion, and our will, or our, our mind, emotion, will makes up our soul. And we don't need our minds stirred up. Uh, we don't need just our uh, emotions stirred up. We don't need our wills just stirred up. We need the Spirit of God in us stirred up. That's what true worship is. When we get past the flesh, when we get past the soul, and we get into the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit of God, and, and when that Spirit of God in us says, Amen, you know, it motivates us to do the same, to say the same. That's true worship. That's one of the things I like about the old hymns of the faith. There are certain songs that whenever I hear them, that stirs the Spirit of God in me. One of those hymns is, Be Thou My Vision. I've got that, somebody made me a beautiful, uh, took a page out of a hymn book and made a beautiful picture out of, a, out of that page in the hymn book. Be Thou My Vision. It hangs on my study wall. And I'll often just stand and look at that and read those words, Be Thou My Vision, O God of My Heart. It stirs, it doesn't just stir my flesh, it doesn't stir my mind, my emotion, my will, it stirs the Spirit of God in me. And I'll tell you, when the Spirit of God stirs inside of me, it stirs everything else along with it, from the inside out. And that is true worship. I said this in Sunday school, if you didn't get a chance to catch the Sunday school hour. I would like to suggest you go back and listen to that. We looked at the life of Samson, and um, I hope that it was a blessing. But we mentioned the fact that in in worship in Sunday school, we mentioned the fact that true worship does not merely stir our our flesh, our soul, our mind, emotional will. It stirs the spirit of God in us. And here's a fact about worship: it doesn't always feel good. When Samson's mother and father received word that they were going to bear this child, and that he was going to have the vow of the Nazarite upon him. Manoah, Samson's father, offered up a sacrifice to God. And when the flame went up, the messenger of God went up in the flame. And Manoah looked at his wife and said, We are going to die because we've seen God. And they fell on their faces in worship. And then later on, his wife reasoned with him just a verse later. said, Honey, if God wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have let us see all that. And she expressed great faith in the God of heaven. Wonderful story there. But, but the fact was, the point I was trying to make, and the point I'm trying to make here is that worship doesn't always feel good. And, and a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of folks out there, a lot of Christians, uh, believe that, uh, that if it feels good, it must be God. And the fact is, worship doesn't feel good. We see a posture all through the Word of God. Over 70 times it's mentioned, uh, this thing of worship, worshiping God. And almost without fail in every single case we see a certain posture and we're just going to cover a few of those verses don't worry we're not going to all 70 this morning i've just chosen a few of them to show that worship doesn't always feel good and it always ends up in a certain posture that we find in the word of god in exodus chapter 4 and verse number 31 Aaron has been appointed to assist Moses because Moses said, but God, I'm a stus, 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 stutter. Uh -huh. And so God said, fine, I'll give you Aaron to be the mouthpiece. And so Aaron spoke all these wonderful things and, and the children of Israel saw that they would, were going to be delivered. And in verse number 31, the Bible says, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. There's always a certain posture that we see associated with worship in the Word of God. And right here we, we begin to see it. They bowed their heads. 
They put their faces to the ground. How about chapter 34? Now we're talking about Moses in Exodus chapter 34 and, and verses 5 through 8. Exodus 34 and verses 5 through 8. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him, Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that by will, no, will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and fourth generation. Here it is. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth. And what did he do? Worship. Worship. There's always a, a posture that's associated with worship in the Word of God. How about, how about this one? We don't see the posture, but we see a response. And this helps us to see that worship doesn't always feel good. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Song song in Isaiah chapter 6. And verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, which had six wings, with twain he covered his feet, twain he did fly, uh, twain uh, he covered his... Uh, his face there, verse number two, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy. What's going on here? Worship. Worship of the Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You see, even the angels covered their faces. Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, and the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the whole house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me. Worship doesn't always feel good. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Folks, worship doesn't look like this. No, sir, no, ma'am. When somebody sees God high and holy and lifted up, they, they fall in their face and cover their mouth and they say, woe is me. The Christian is made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, the living word, and by the written word so that he may enter into the presence of God for true worship. When we come to God and worship, we don't come on our own merit. We come in the merits of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, when we begin to consider what Christ has done for us, it doesn't feel good. When we consider that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. I think mean, one of the biblical figures that understood what Christ did for them that, that we could point to for biblical illustration would be Barabbas. You know when Barabbas stood and saw all that went on at the cross of Calvary? I've got to imagine, the Bible doesn't record this, but I've got to imagine, I mean, this wasn't something that was done in the closet. It was very, very public. And I think Barabbas caught a sight of that and at least had the thought, that should have been me. And when we get into the presence of Christ and we begin to determine what it is that Christ has done for us and washed us in his own blood, it doesn't feel good. It puts us on our faces as we enter into the presence 
of God for true worship. Now back to John chapter 4. You know that God is seeking true worshipers? He's looking for those. He's looking for true worshipers. This is an interesting thing that I had never considered before I studied for this for this morning. God is looking for true worshipers. I've heard somebody else say it. I've read other statements like that or that have said exactly that. God is looking for true worshipers. Matter of fact, we find that very thing in John chapter 4 and verse number 4 uh, when uh, it's actually uh, later on, but in John chapter 4 we, we see something, an example of it being set up for it. John 4, 4, the Bible says, and he must needs go through Samaria. Who's he? Christ. And why is he going through Samaria? He had three ways to get back to Galilee. And Samaria was the shortest route, but is also the most despised route. I mean, no, no Jew would have dealings with a half-breed Samaritan. That's what they viewed them as. Those aren't my sentiments, but that's how they view them. Matter of fact, the woman at the well, as you know, said, what is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for water? She knew. But why did the Lord pass through Samaria? And here's the answer, because he was looking for true worshipers. Look at verses 5 through 7, and we're going to very briefly cover the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well, then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Now let's jump down to verse 25. A bunch, a bunch of things happened. He engaged her in a conversation. He revealed her sin to her. She uh, had uh, Christ uh, revealed who he was to her. Verse number 25 says, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he, cometh, uh, when he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went away into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is this not the Christ? Jesus said, The, the Messiah that you're talking about, that's me. And after what she had just experienced in speaking with Christ at that well, she believed the words of Christ, the living word. And she said, she left her water pot and went to the city and said, You've got to come see this. Here is a man that told me everything that I ever did. He didn't know me. This is the first time that we met. And in his omniscience, he displays all of the character of God. And in his omniscience, in his omnipotence, has granted me freedom from my guilt and freedom from my sin. Come see a man. Is this not the Christ? You know what she was doing? She was worshiping. Look at verses 39 to 42. Not only this dear lady, verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of the city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. He, they sought after him. And that's what it means to worship, worship, to seek after. They besought after him that he would tarry with them. And, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. You know what Christ found in Samaria? He found a bunch of worshipers. Found a bunch of worshipers because that's what he's seeking. 
God is, the hour cometh, verse 23 says, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God seeks true worshipers. Now, I want to just take a, a brief pause here to say one cannot be a true worshiper of God outside of Christ. You can't. When God created man, he created him a trichotomy. God said in Genesis 1.26, let us create man in our image. Well, we serve a triune God, a three-in-one God. He's, he's God, Father, God, Son, God, the Holy Spirit. All three are one, according to the Scriptures. God, uh, the Father is a part of God that we can know. God, the Son is a part of God that we can see. God, the Spirit is a part of God that we can feel. When we get to heaven, we're going to see one God, not three. God created man in his own image. God is a trinity, but he created, created man a trichotomy. He created man with a body, a soul, and a spirit. God formed man with the dust of the ground. The book of Genesis tells us that was his body. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The breath of life is significant. It points to the spirit of God, the thing that allows a human being to have a relationship with God. Breathe, it's the living spirit within him that allows him to connect with the living spirit of God. Breathe in his, his nostrils, the breath of life. And then the Bible goes on to tell us in Genesis, and man became a living soul. He had a mind, he had a motion, and he had a will. And so man was created a trichotomous being. God gave man a, two wonderful gifts in the Garden of Eden. He said uh, that he was to dress and keep the garden. And so God gave man responsibility, but he also gave man the opportunity in that he said, And of all the trees of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely what? Die. What happened? Eve was deceived. Adam walked into it. They ate of the forbidden fruit, and in their rebellion were separated from God. Death means separation. But here's the interesting thing. Adam's body didn't die that day because the Bible records in the next chapters uh, that, that he had more children. Eve didn't die that day physically. Their body didn't die. Their soul didn't die. Your soul is your mind, your emotion, your will. They continue to think. They continue to want. They continue to feel. So that didn't die. But something died that day because I know God is a God of his word. What died that day was man's spirit. His ability to connect with the Spirit of God. That's why in Ephesians 2 and verse number 1, the Word of God tells us, And you, that is the believer, hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in your trespasses and sins. God enters the life of the believer and quickens that dead spirit and revitalizes it and rebirths man into the image of God. Now, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned and, and had that spiritual death inside of them, what happened from that point forward is death passed upon all men. The Word of God tells us in Genesis that Adam uh, had another son, and his name was Seth, and the Bible tells us of Seth that Seth was born in Adam's image and Adam's likeness, not in the image of God like Adam had been born in. Seth was born with a body. Seth was born with a mind, emotions, and will. But Seth was born with a dead spirit. And Seth had to make the personal decision somewhere along the line. And apparently he did. Uh, that he was going to trust in the coming Messiah. They looked forward to what we look back to now. 
And uh, at that point, uh, Seth, that spirit inside of Seth was revitalized, was brought back to life, and he was allowed and able to have a relationship with God, looking forward to the Messiah. But it's impossible for those which are spiritually dead to worship God. They can't do it. John 4, 23, but the hour cometh, and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You see where they got to worship him? And if that spirit's dead, you can't worship God. You've got to be quickened. You've got to be made alive. And the only way for that to happen is through Christ. They that worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Who is the truth? Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see that? The only way that we can begin to worship God, a person must be made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. And being made alive in the Spirit is the work of God in a willing heart. For as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Not born not of the not of blood. You can't be born into a Christian family and hope that you'll have the it's a, it's not being born into that family. Nor of the will of the flesh. You can't work it up, work it out, or work in it. Nor the will of man. Mom and dad can't do it for you. The pastor can't do it for you. The priest can't do it for you. But by the will of God. What is the will of God? That all men everywhere, everybody everywhere should hear the gospel and should come to faith in him through the Lord Jesus Christ and have that relationship and be restored, have that spiritual birth defect corrected once and for all for eternity so that they can worship him because God is seeking worshipers. It doesn't end at the benefit of salvation for the believer. The end of salvation is the worship of God. Where we fall on our faces before him and cry, holy, holy, holy. Faith in Christ alone enables one to become a true worshiper. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And only those that have trusted in Christ alone can do that. True service grows out of true worship. I want to talk to the believer for a moment, those who have already trusted in Christ as Savior. Too often our appeal is limited to the lostness of mankind without any mention of God's worthiness. And our limited appeal for people to come to faith in Christ leads to converts who are content to enjoy the benefits of salvation without any of the responsibility and it falls short of the Great Commission when we make it only about their lost condition now men without Christ are lost people without Christ are lost they're hopeless helpless they're under the wrath of God they're condemned already according to the book of John chapter 3 they're all these things they're on the road to destruction eternal destruction and separation from God forever but we cannot only make it about the lostness of man we've got to make it about the worthiness of God to receive worship and when we, when we approach evangelism like, well, as long as people are getting saved, what does it matter? Here's why it matters. Because a person who is only saved and only understands the, their lost estate and doesn't understand that God is worthy of their praise will go through their, their believing life never growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ like they ought to and in many cases ending up just enjoying the benefits of salvation and rejecting all of the responsibility for it. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I've trusted Jesus. 
but they don't want to get rid of everything else because they, they don't see all that they do in light of a holy and righteous God. And so they go through their believing life with nothing more than, than a desire to enjoy the benefits of salvation and the future and eternity with God. And they never learn that God is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of our separation unto Him. Amen. And that when it comes down to it, God didn't just send Jesus to come to this earth to give benefits to believers, but to receive worship. That's the end of it. God doesn't, or God seeks worshipers. You see that? Thank God. We thank God that that woman at the well trusted in Christ as her Savior. We thank God that she was a faithful witness and went into the city and brought others to Christ and others believed on Him, not just because of her word, but because of the words that they heard Christ speak. And we thank God that those people someday will stand in eternity with them and enjoy hearing how they came to faith in Christ. That's wonderful. But what's more wonderful and more splendorous and glorious than that is the fact that when Christ went through Samaria, He found worshipers. And when Christ comes to Liberty Lake, he needs to find worshipers. And when Christ comes to Liberty Lake Baptist Church, he needs to find worshipers. True service grows out of true worship. The salvation of the lost has a greater purpose than just a fire escape. People come to Christ because to become true worshipers. And that's demonstrated for us in, in our text. Now, I want to move on to this thought. The most dangerous substitute for worship is Christian service. This is for the believer. The most dangerous substitute for worship is Christian service. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, we learn, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The most dangerous substitute for worship is Christian service. And we've got to be careful but as we get involved with the church, that, that we don't equate our worship with what we're doing. Christian service should be birthed out of our worship. True, true service is a byproduct. It's a byproduct of, of our worship. When, when we get with God, in the presence of God, we fall on our faces. We realize what God has done for us That makes us live the words of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. When we see who God is, when we see him high and holy and lifted up, and we cover our mouths and fall on our faces and say, woe is me, service will follow when we begin to understand what it is, obedience is going to fall. It'll grow. Service will grow out of our worship. 
by, as a byproduct of our worship. Now, many grow bored in worship. That's evidence on any given service. Generally speaking, people don't get real excited about going to church. They have a hard time staying awake. Do you think you'd have a hard time staying awake if you were in the presence of God? When God passed by Moses, do you think he was... You know what our problem is? And I'm saying our, I'm including myself. Whether it's worship that we worship God as we spend time alone with him in, in our personal time, devotion time, or in prayer, or in church. And our eyelids are so heavy. We get bored with it. We're not worshiping. We can't place all the blame on the preacher. You can place some blame. Because quite frankly, I've listened to some preachers that are dry as popcorn juice. But you know what I've learned? What I've learned when I, when I really worship God, it doesn't matter how dry the preacher is. As long as he's bringing God's word, I can listen to it hour upon hour upon hour. And then when he dismisses, it leaves me wanting, saying, give me more. Give me more. I've watched this. I've observed this in my own life as I've preached in different parts of the world. I preached for an hour and 45 minutes and started to wrap things up and the interpreter stopped me and said, is that all you got? Preached for an hour and 45 minutes more, gave an invitation, and the altar was full. I've said this so many times and I hope you don't tire me saying but in America we've got a cheap version of Christianity and worship you know we're like this even the preacher I've got a clock up here the preacher's going man I better better get through this better get through this or lose these folks you know why that is because we're not true worshipers We got to prepare ourselves to be true worshipers. Number one, you must be saved. You've got to be saved. A lost person coming to church is. I mean, we're thankful for anybody who comes to church. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But worship is for believers. If you're watching this, listening to this, or here today, and you're just going through the motions, stop going through the motions. Make it real. I'm not, I'm not telling you to give it all up and go do something else. If it's, if it's not real, if you're not a true worshiper, make it real today. Be saved. Trust in Christ alone. Right now, right now, right where you are, trust in Christ alone. From your heart, communicate with God. Let him know that you believe that you're a sinner. Believe that you deserved hell. hell. Believe that Christ is paid for that sin and believe that, that Christ is able to save you, that you trust in Christ alone. Right now, right now. Don't wait another moment. Do it. Prepare yourself to be a true worshiper. But you know what the truth is? Even after people get saved, even after people are prepared to worship God because they've trusted in Christ alone, they still attend the meetings of the church on the, on the Lord's Day unprepared. 
They're not prepared. The average worship service in the church today is, is relegated to nothing more than entertainment. The people come and they, they're entertained and there's no engagement from the heart. That's not worship. And God's people, sincere people, wonderful people, don't get me wrong, good people come to church, but they come to church unprepared. They're, they're not expecting to meet God. In the epilogue of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who was king after Solomon, the epilogue of his life is a sad one. And final words that were written concerning him and his reign state this, he did evil. Why? Because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Do you think it's important for the pastor to prepare for the message on Sunday morning? Do you think it's important for the congregant to prepare? What do you expect of me? Do you expect that I walk with God through the week? Do you expect that I read my Bible and pray and study the Word of God? Why don't you? It's as important for those that listen as it is for those that speak. Worship. May the same testimony not be recorded of us as it was of Rehoboam. May we come together each week to worship God having been with him. Because I promise you this, if we will see God high and holy and lifted up and spend time with him, we will show up ready to worship. And everything else that we do as a church will grow from that. Will you commit to that? To becoming a true worshiper of God? Will you trust in Christ as your Savior? God seeking true worshipers. Don't mistake work for worship. Do you truly desire to worship God? Or do you just want to keep going through the motions? I wouldn't. Many of you know my testimony, and I'm, I'm probably going to share this more than once today. I'm going to share it again in the evening service. I was saved on September 16, 1979. But at the age of 16, I walked away from the faith that I'd grown up with. I thought I could find it somewhere else. That's kind of like Samson, you know? Samson grew up in a godly home. I wasn't as good looking or charismatic or as strong as Samson. I'm not trying to make that comparison. But I had the same attitude looking everywhere else for fulfillment only to find that everything I was looking for brought me back to the same place where I started from. In March of 1993, I got sick of going through the motions. And I said, you know what? I'm either going to do this thing or I'm not. In March of 1993, I entered into another rest. 
and I've never gone back. It's never even been a question. Now that's not to say that I, I don't struggle. I do. But I crossed the line. And I said enough is enough and I'm not playing games anymore. I'm not playing Christian anymore. I'm not just going to enjoy the benefits of salvation and neglect the responsibilities of what I've been given. The faith once delivered unto the saints. I'm going to earnestly contend for the faith. Again, I, I haven't been a, a perfect at it. I struggle just like everybody else struggles. But I know this. There was a line that I crossed. I believe they, that's spoken of in the book of Hebrews. We're going to talk about that tonight, actually. There's a rest unto salvation. Do you know that? There's a tremendous rest in knowing that, that when you die, you're going to be in the presence of God. You can pillow your head pretty well at night. I remember the night I got saved. I couldn't sleep until I trusted Christ, and then I've never had a sleep like that. But there came that other, that other rest that I entered into when I finally reached the end of my rope and decided I'm going to become a true worshiper of God. Don't you want that? You just want to keep going through the motions. Don't. Don't just keep going through.